Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast, Drew Horning with you. This is our 100th episode. When we started, we're not podcasters. We were figuring it out as we went. Here we are, season five, on our 100th episode. Kind of an exciting milestone to hit. Couldn't have a better guest than Ian Salvage. A Hoffman teacher, a therapist. Listen along as Ian starts in utero and then moves through his experience as a enrollment coordinator at the office all the way up to his present life as a teacher and a therapist. Actually, in the moment, what it's like to be in this conversation with me talking about his life. Really, a full-spectrum story of what it means to be a Hoffman teacher. Part of why it works is there are no gurus. There are just real humans as teachers walking side-by-side with the students on their journey of healing. Please enjoy this episode, our 100th with Ian Salvage. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. It's Ian Salvage that is on the show today. Ian, welcome. Thank you, Drew. Glad to, glad to finally be here. Glad to be finally having this conversation you and I have yeah. been trying to schedule it, and I'm just really looking forward to it. Ian, you have a master's degree in counseling psychology from the Wright Institute, You're an associate marriage and family therapist. You specialize in somatic therapy, and you're a Hoffman process teacher. It's great to be having this conversation with you. Welcome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm actually a licensed marriage and family therapist now, so that may have been some uh, old information you might have there. To be licensed is is not a small thing. No, thank you. Uh, So tell us, Ian, a little bit of your story, of who you are. I am one of seven children, actually. And so mixed in there is a couple of stepbrothers and I have four sisters, so a really big family. When I was thinking about getting on this interview with you, I actually had to really ask myself, like, what is my story? You know, like, who am I? I'm not really a big sharer. You know, I'm a much better listener. And so it was nice to kind of look inward and say, hey, like, you know, what is my story? You know, where, where, where am I coming from? And a couple of things came to mind, you know, when I think about my childhood, my story kind of started like all of us, obviously, in utero, meaning, you know, when I was, my mother's pregnant with me, uh, she was severely, severely depressed, like really, really depressed, even suicidal ideations, like she was really going through a lot. And so, 
you know, one of my first like somatic memories, so like the memories of my body, is you know really kind of being in some really deep, deep emotional pain, like in my nervous system. And you know, it took me many years to kind of kind of come to that. My mom was able to share a lot with me, but um, you know, it was a a big thing for me was I was learning at a very young age and throughout my life that emotions were overwhelming. You know, they're really, really big, you know, bigger than what I was developmentally ready for. And, you know, moving in, you know, when I was born, my parents divorced when I was five and, you know, we lived in some poverty and, you know, there was a lot, a lot of love and also, you know, a lot of trauma. And I learned this really amazing strategy called disassociating, learning how to actually not be present with emotions because I was learning that they were too big for me, too big for my little body to handle. You know, I had like a panic attack when I was five. Like there was a lot happening. And in that amazing strategy to survive and disassociate throughout my life, it was very hard for me to be present, very hard for me to, to be connected. And that really led me on my journey to heal by f- trying to come back into my body, trying to make myself, you know, remind myself that I'm safe and that I have tools. And, and this is kind of like a vague story here, but it was in that that really led me to my journey to heal is really coming back to present and coming back to an adult nervous system. Ian, you do such a good job of explaining the value of patterns that we learn early on in our childhood. Certainly disassociating can be problematic in adulthood, but I really get a sense of the value of it in childhood. It it helped you not get too overwhelmed by life. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I say that with purpose because I think we have, often we have this idea that, you know, that these ways, these patterns that help to survive are like they're bad and they're negative. And the truth is they, they really helped. But as an adult, man, has it gotten in my way. <laughs> and I've had to really learn to, to rewire that way of being. And Hoppin was a big part of that. So this five-year-old who has the panic attack and then learns to disassociate, although doesn't have the terminology for it, what happens then as you move through your grade school, high school, college experiences? Well, it's interesting. You know, when I was five years old, I remember specifically, I was coloring a coloring book, like the color purple. I remember that. And in order to actually color and to create, and we have to open up our right brain to express. It's a, it's a different part of our brain. And so, as I was expressing through color, I was like flooded with emotions and feelings that there uh, wasn't much room for me to express when I was young in my childhood. So, they kind of came out in a really traumatic way. So, I learned, oh, you know, emotions are scary. Emotions are too big. And in disassociating, not really being present in my body, what happened was, so, you know, I grew up in a dojo. I think if you listen to my sister's podcasts, I have four sisters now in the process, by the way. All four. Yeah, all four, which is pretty cool. And Olivia and Katie have been on the podcast. I think they both talked about growing up in a dojo. Uh, my dad's a master in Kung Fu. Describe a little bit of what a dojo is. Yeah, it's basically a martial arts studio. And most dojos and, and masters in Kung Fu, like my father, like you're, you're basically there from like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. You know, you're kind of living at the dojo. And so, at a very young age, 
I learned how to use my body to, to move, to fight, to express. And why I mentioned that is when I turned 20 years old, I was a pretty athletic young man and I was running track and field at my junior college. And I had this really bad injury. I strained my hip flexor really bad. And for some reason, this injury wouldn't heal. Like I went, you know, I went to all the doctors, all the physical therapists, and it wasn't getting better. And as I was trying to go through rehab on this physical part, you know, my groin area, you know, I was beginning kind of to disassociate. Like a lot of emotions were coming up. And eventually, you know, my body kind of shut down. And it was, I think it was my spirit's way of saying, hey, you know, it's kind of time to look at what's, what's inside because I was using activities and physical movement. You know, it was like my escape. And when that got taken away, I was kind of forced to actually really go inward. I remember when I was 20, I went to Europe backpacking for three months. And I just had this awareness of, oh, like, it's time I actually look inward. Like, it's something my body has shut down. I can't get better. I need to look about what's happening for me. Part of what you're saying is your body said, although you've done all this physical activity, playing basketball, running track, all the athletics you've done, enough is enough. I'm not going to be the uh, escape portion of your life for you. Time to go inward. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many stories I hear about, you know, the body keeps the score. Our bodies, our nervous system will shut down eventually. And in a sense, I was kind of lucky enough that my body shut down early because, you know, I probably would have tried my best to avoid like I had been doing my whole life. And so, in looking back, it was a blessing because it made me really look around how my trauma, my patterns, the pain I was carrying inside was impacting every area of my life. And it, it kind of took away my coping mechanisms and I had to, to do the work. This part of your groin area wouldn't heal. And so what did you do? Did you go to a therapist? How, what was next? Yeah. So, you know, so I, I was working with this uh, man named William Lewis, actually, he's an energetic healer, an amazing practitioner. So he works with the body and works with energy of the body. So I went to go see him. I was maybe 21 years old and I was in a lot of pain, like a lot of physical, like chronic pain for my body being really tight and not being able to to move like I really wanted to. So I, I get, I, we have a session with him. I know this is kind of woo-woo, but he kind of energetically reads your body and reads your movements. And he said, hey, you know, if you don't look at this, at this deep wounding from childhood, if you don't look at this deep sadness you've been carrying, your body's going to shut down even more. And I can kind of already tell you're going to get testicular cancer. And this man works all around the world with people with, with diseases. And he he's, you know, does a lot of work around this. So anyway, that woke me up and I started my journey of going to therapists, uh, starting to really start to work on the things I wanted to avoid. And when I was 17 years old, you know, going back, my mom went to the Hoffman process and she had a big shift when she came back. And I had dropped out of college at this time. I think I was 24. I dropped out of college and my mom said, hey, if you're going to drop out, go the Hoffman process and just see, you know, see how that can support you. I did that and my journey's been starting ever since then. And you've had a interesting Hoffman relationship. You've done so much. Tell us a little bit about beyond that first time. How did you get involved 
in enrollment? Yeah. So um, I did the process when I was 24 and then went back, graduated from college. And Hoffman was hiring as like a program registrar. And someone sent me an email saying, hey, you know, you know, you know I got a, my undergraduate was in psychology. So I figured, hey, this could be a good place to start. And I applied. I was completely underqualified, by the way, for this like job that really needed you to be able to multitask and organize. <laughs> but Eliza and Grassi, bless her soul, our CEO, she saw something in me, hired me, and been working in enrollment for maybe maybe seven years after that. I done the process three times. So I did the process when I was 24. In I think 2013, the Hoffman process got rejuvenated from eight day process to six and a half day process. So myself, um, some other people in the office, some other teachers, we kind of did the Hoffman process again to kind of test it out. So basically, so we were kind of like the, the dummy test. And then in my second process, I had this deep understanding that the healing work I've been doing, that I have the capacity to help others. And it was in that, in that process that I really, after that, started looking at graduate school and looking at my capacity to, to be a healer and to be a support. And then at the same time, Hoffman was hiring for me to become hiring new teachers. And I was young enough and dumb enough to do grad school and Hoffman teaching training at the same time. But it was an amazing experience. And kind of here I am. Of your three processes, take us a little bit into the experience. What, What stands out? Do you have some memories? of some moments in time. And I ask that question in part because it is such a cellular journey. You mentioned Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. And so for you, where did your body unlock and open up to some of the healing during your week? I think about that often. And I think when I was 24 years old, you know, I was in a lot of pain, you know, highly disassociating a lot. But one of the big things from that, from that first time I did the process was, you know, as a child, I felt bad. And since children, we internalize our experience. How I made sense of the world was, oh, I feel bad, therefore I am bad. So I had this big shame message my whole life that I was bad, you know, because I feel bad all the time. There must be, that must mean I'm bad. And man, that soaked through every part of my life, my relationship to myself, to others, just this big shame message that I was innately bad inside. Some point in, in the expression work at Hoffman, I don't remember which one at this point, there was this release that like, that's not true. Like, I'm good. Like, to my bones, I am good. Bad things may have happened to me, but I am good. And it, was, it wasn't like a... Uh, it wasn't that someone told me that or that I was hearing about it. It was I was using my body and I was disconnecting and I was saying, like, this is not who I am. And I think that was the probably the first step to my healing journey was just the awareness of, oh, that's actually a lie. And in that, I was able to start asking for help. I was able to treat myself with more kindness and rewire that belief that I carried with me, you know, probably before I can walk. Allowing my body to align and to align and connect to what my intellect thought and knew, to what my emotional self felt, 
and to what my spiritual self is. Like that, my body was the, was the missing piece to that alignment, to knowing I was good, to feeling deep down I was good, and, and to remembering and embodying my spirit, which is good. And that's been my journey. You know, that's been a big thing for me is having that alignment and carrying it with me in my life. Beautiful. Ian, you, will you share some specifics of that? In other words, how does it show up in, in relationship or around identity? What's been some of the specifics of your journey in the granular sense of how life operates? So, um, for those listeners who don't know who I am, so I'm, I'm half black, half white. So my, my father is black, my mom is, is white. Going back to childhood, when my parents divorced, I lived with my dad, and my little sister lived with my mom. My dad came from like really, really deep poverty in his life, and it, I grew up in poverty with him for uh, a certain part of my life in childhood. And my mother grew up from the East Coast uh, with a family that were mostly middle, upper class. And an interesting thing happened, and I'll tell you how this is going to relate soon, but as a child, my black side of the family were poor. The white side had money. And again, because children internalize the environment, I had this belief that, oh, the black people are poor. Therefore, they must be bad. Like my little brain at like four or five years old trying to figure out the world was like, oh, black people were poor and in poverty. And maybe this must be because we're bad. And white people have money. That means they must be good. And it's such a it's such a youthful young thought, you know, to to try to make sense of, of that of that. But it related to that shame message that not only did I did, did I experience this in my childhood, but the world was also mirroring back to me on some level that I was less than that I was bad because of the color of my skin. When I talk about that shame message, I'm bad. It really also relates to how I see myself, and that I can look at my body, that I can look at my skin color, I can look at the man I am with love and compassion. And, and again, a knowing how lovable and good I am, but looking back to how my childhood and society had really done a good job at shaping my identity of how I see myself and how I move in the world. And that's been a, it was a really, really big healing for me is to rewire that shame message that came from multiple aspects from my life. The process was integral in that journey? Yeah, the process was integral in understanding that my shame message was not true. You know, the process doesn't necessarily talk about society and, and racism, but it talks about the shame that we take on from our families and also how society is impacting our families. And that was, you know, that was, a, that was a big healing and still is to this day, moving through that and navigating how I see myself. When you came out of your processes, did you engage family members, your dad, your mom around this discovery around race and all you were learning and unlearning? Yes and no. Yeah, I, again, I have some patterns of not necessarily expressing myself much. So, <laughs> as I was navigating that, I'm not sure how much I shared with it. But during COVID, you know, two years ago, there was that, that, the big Black Lives Matter movement, 
it really kind of gave me more permission to speak about my experience and more per- permission to tell my story and also invite, invite people into my life to help, help them hold me in the suffering and the shame that I carried. That really kind of helped me move in that direction. I wrote like a short essay and it's titled uh, Nine Months That I Wasn't Black. And what happened was um, I took a vacation during COVID. I was supporting a bit the, the black community. I was kind of getting burned out. I needed just to escape. So I took a vacation to Maui and then never came back. I just stayed there. I could work remotely. And so I was able to kind of stay in Maui. And nine months after that, I did something that I've never in my life done before. You know, if, if you look at me in Hawaii, if you place me in Hawaii, uh, many of the locals and the tourists think that I'm a native Hawaiian because of my skin color. I, I kind of can blend into looking like a native Hawaiian. So most people don't actually don't think or know I'm black. Long story short, I was walking to this park and a police officer was driving by. And I did something that was ingrained in me to never, ever do in my life. And I actually, I waved to the, to the police officer as he drove by. And I almost was in shock that I did that. And what I realized was, oh my God, like I feel safe. The police officers are also Native Hawaiians and they, they see me as one of them. Uh, and it was such a big, big awareness of, oh my God, like growing up and not necessarily feeling feeling totally safe in the world. And how that's attributed to, again, you know, how that shows up in all aspects of my life and even my shame message. And so it was just a really big awareness of kind of the detriment of that, but also um, the freedom that I have. I have choice to, to hold myself with more care. Ian, I love that story. You described not being good at expressing yourself and that one of the things you're learning is to allow people, I forget how you said it, but to share yourself so that people can, you can invite people into your life to hold you. I mean, you described emotional intimacy in a way that I've not heard described before. Will you say a little bit more about what that journey is like for you, given that's not your direct impulse? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a quote I always kind of come back to, and it says, it's in relationships that we were hurt, and it's in relationships that we heal. I think as I've developed and I've grown, and honestly, becoming a Hoffman teacher has really helped me with this, is that it's in community that we heal. It's, it's in telling our story, letting others hold us and see us, see our, see our pain, see our hurt. It's in that experience of being seen and held and loved that we heal. You know, when I was becoming a Hoffman teacher, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a training, when I was in training for it, you know, I think like my first internship, I was trying to be a Hoffman teacher. I was trying to, trying to teach. And what I've learned was when I'm there, if I can just share myself, not share my story necessarily, but just be in the authentic vulnerability of the human experience, you know, say, Hey, like I'm here right with you. Like I'm right by your side. I don't may, I may not know your specific trauma and suffering, but I know that, like, I know what that is. And just being side by side with people uh, has helped me become more vulnerable with, with other people in my life. And I think we learn, I learned that it's through that vulnerability 
that the real healing occurs. And that's been a big gift that I've learned from being a Hoffman teacher. I love your vulnerability here in this conversation. Will you contrast a little bit your work as a Hoffman teacher and your work as a licensed therapist? What do you notice in these two roles? You know, one thing I wanted to share earlier that I'm not I'm glad I'm remembering. So the Hoffman process, it's it's one of the most the most amazing experiences I've ever been a part of. And the integration, which meaning like the time afterwards, is probably the most important part. So it's really the time after Hoffman that we really integrate and heal and transform. I mean, the week is amazing, but the real work begins afterwards, which I think most graduates can tell you. So as a Hoffman, te- I mean, as a um, as a therapist, I, I I work, I do a lot of work around the inner child, like reconnecting and learning to have more intimacy and connection with our inner child, using the body to help us process trauma and help us connect to our truth. You know, I had a great supervisor in, in grad school called Kathleen Dunbar, who is a Hakomi therapist, and it's really about inner child work, somatic work. But what I can do with a client in three to five years, they'll probably do that at Hoffman in a week because of the group aspect, because of the community around it, um, and because they're there for a week. And But my work is very much similar to, to Hoffman. It's just helping people remember who they are, like remembering who their spirit really is. Like we have all these narratives we take on. We have all these patterns that get in the way of us actually embodying who we truly are. So my work really is how can I bring people to their spirit? Like how can I bring them to their authentic self, their wise self, their true self? And that's really kind of in my hope and my intention. You know, Ian, you, you've said a couple of things. I just want to highlight the the first one is that the the time after and the integration of the work is really where it all begins. And, you know, that can be challenging for students who've just worked their tail off during a week and they feel so good to think that that's just the beginning. And so will you just share a little bit about what makes a post-process integration go well and what makes it go off the rails what i've seen both in my personal experience and just being a hoffman teacher i think what stops us from integrating and healing is this belief that oh i've done the work therefore i should be perfect and fine and completely healed you know or whatever that means the real healing is in the relapse meaning like you go the hoffman process have this amazing week you go home and then you find yourself in patterns. You find yourself in these old coping mechanisms. You find yourself getting kind of lost in negative patterns. And the real healing journey is, how do I now come back to my truth? Like, how do I see this, hold myself with love, ask for support, and come back to my spirit? It's in that kind of getting lost and coming back, getting lost and coming back. It's in that pendulation that we integrate and heal. And I think many, I think, so many people aren't aware that it's in that journey that we we come to ourself, we come to our truth. I made a lot of mistakes after Hoffman. I'm going to continue to make mistakes. And the way I hold myself with love and come back to my truth is the real work. I know I'm kind of repeating myself, but I think it was a really important lesson I learned there. I do think there's value in in what you're saying because 
many graduates think that, that you know, they f it's no secret that post-process you feel pretty good. And sometimes the goal, really sort of the unspoken goal, is to maintain that feeling. And in fact, part of what you're saying is, while that might be nice, the real work happens when the dark side attack occurs, when we struggle, when that feeling goes away and we're hurting. Say more about what should happen in those moments when, when it's not going well. I can tell you for me, growing up, if I made a mistake or, you know, if I did something wrong, in many ways, like, you know, I was punished. Like, I, I was learned, oh, change is motivated through punishment, you know? <laughs> After Hoffman and the therapy I've done, it's like, okay, when I'm hurting, how do I motivate myself through love? Like, how do I hold myself gently? Like, how do I love myself through the change rather than criticizing, shaming, and guilting myself to motivate change? I think many of us learned to do those things. We shame, criticize, and guilt ourselves, thinking that's going to be the way to motivate and sustain change. And the truth is, it has to be through love. And it's hard, man. I, mean, I took a two-year self-compassion class because it was the hardest thing for me to hold myself with love when I was suffering. I mean, that was such a big shift and it was almost impossible to think to do that. But I think that's, that is the real work is holding yourself with love, asking for help and um, allowing yourself to be a human. What's it like to be a human on your journey, forever learning, Ian, always humble and yet quite powerful. I see you in front of the room and your work with students, and I think you embody presence in such a deep and profound way. I, I look at you in your, in your work as a teacher with such awe, and as I told you, you're good medicine for me because you're just so present with your students, whether they're 30 of them and you're in front of the classroom or whether there's just one of them and you're in a breakout session. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I tell people I had a lot of good teachers and a lot of good therapists in my life, you know, to, to help me get to this, to this place. And I, I think what one of my intentions was and in, in, on this podcast was for people to see like, in many ways, I'm in an authority position when I'm teaching or I'm, as a therapist but like I'm on the journey, you know, like I, I struggle with anxiety and I struggle with depression, you know, like there's moments, lots of moments where I feel like I'm lost and, you know, there's no hope. Uh, in my own journey, I'm realizing that that's part of being a human being. And I'm allowed to be mad at God. I'm allowed to have a bad day. You know, I'm, I'm allowed to, to get messy and that doesn't make me any less lovable or any less worthy. And I think I was really hoping that people can, t can take that like, Oh, like you don't have to be perfect. Like this, this is the journey and you can still be loved. And like, that was a big, big, big lesson for me in my life. Yeah. And it was even preventing you from sitting down with me for this conversation. I remember I came back to you again and said, would you reconsider after your first couple of no's? And, and what did you say? Because I thought it was, it was quite profound. 
Yeah, I was so thankful for that experience because you asked me to be on the podcast. And my first thought was, oh, wait, I haven't made it yet. I haven't healed. I haven't gotten there. I'm not enlightened. It was this idea that my story had to be complete, that I had to have fully healed myself and like been in this place. And it was such a good lesson for me because I'm, I'm now realizing, oh, it's, it's in the journey. It's in the story that we help motivate people. You know, it's in our vulnerability that we inspire. And it was such a good lesson. I was so also grateful that you asked me and I said no for so long until I asked myself, why am I saying no? And I had this idea that I had to, I had to have it all figured out. And that's just, it's so not true. And I don't think, you know, that's how people get inspired. So what is next for you? You're still in Hawaii and still teaching and in private practice, but what's next? What, what do you notice as you look towards the future? I think my journey is to, to honestly, to continue like loving myself, you know, like, honestly, I think that's continue to do that because it's when I do that, that I, that I'm really present in the world. Um, so who knows what's there, what's to come, but I think my my journey, my my life lesson is going to be really holding myself with love, which I think many of us can relate to. I am at the Hoffman Retreat site. I'm about to teach a process starting tomorrow morning. And one of the things we talk about is surrender and what it means to surrender to your spiritual self and surrender and let go. And I think you just did a great job of describing that. I'm not sure what the future holds, but I do know that if I love myself through it all, that I'll be okay with whatever happens. I'm so grateful that I've learned that, that I'm learning that lesson and that I'm bringing into practice and that I'm, and sometimes I really suck at it, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, I believe I, in many ways I became a teacher and a therapist because I wanted to heal. You know, I think every time I teach a process, a part of me heals. Every time I, I support one in, someone in my therapy, a part of me heals. I don't use it for that purpose, but I think my journey has been in helping others in the work. I'm going to be able to continually help myself and vice versa. Ian, what's it like to tell your story and reflect so deeply on your ongoing learning of how to be a human yeah well i'm wondering if i'm gonna have like a vulnerability hangover after this but uh <laughs> it feels right and it feels important and I'm, I'm glad that i gave myself the opportunity to share my truth and to share my humanness again i, I guess in this moment i feel grateful that i've had so many people in my life who've helped me get to this place where i can actually articulate and express myself yeah there's just gratitude in this moment Ian, thank you so much for this time, for your heart, for this conversation. Hey, Drew, thank you. Thank everyone. I appreciate you all. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.